and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A few things that should never get old. Sunsets, mountain views, holidays, and John 3.16. Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series, The Gift and the Giver, with this sermon entitled Trusting the Giver, which covers John chapter 3, verse 16. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Our scripture reading today is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, Christopher. Well done, brother. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it but that as seed sown and good ground, it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen and amen. And I ask you a question that perhaps is, and I would even argue is the most important question you would ever be asked. And it's simply this, do you believe God loves you? I'm pausing because I'm guessing that for the majority of us, perhaps maybe even all of us, we quickly thought, yes. But I'm gonna ask it again, and this time I want it not to be a quick instinctive yes, because perhaps you grew up in or around church and you've been a Christian for some time and your just instinct is to say yes. But this time to think a little more deeply of not do I just agree intellectually that yes, God loves me, but do I believe it? Do you believe God loves you? It's a critical question because how we answer that question determines a lot of things. How we approach God, how we think of him, how we relate to him, I would even argue that how we answer that question determines really every other aspect of our lives. Everything, if we don't believe that God loves us, I would say at some level, everything falls apart from there. If we do believe deeply, viscerally that God loves us, everything builds from there, changes everything, it transforms everything in our lives. Some of us, it's it's a real struggle. If we're honest with ourselves, we, we really do struggle, even though we've maybe been in the faith for a very long time, we struggle to believe that God really does love me. I've struggled with that in my life. I've struggled to believe at times that God loves me. In fact, I went through a 15 year season in my life where I was absolutely convinced, although I would tell you, yes, God loves me. I was convinced that quite the opposite was true, that he was out to get me. 
I was walking on eggshells constantly with God. I was convinced because of past sin in my life that uh, yes, it, theoretically and intellectually, he loves me. Yeah, okay, I can, I can ascend to that, I can agree to it, but realistically, he's against me. He's out to get me. Some of you have experienced incredibly difficult circumstances in life that certainly lead you down the path of doubt of God's love. And it's really hard, admittedly hard, to not let the difficult circumstances of our life be something that determines our measure of God's love. Do you believe that God loves you despite our circumstances? That his love is not determined by those things, that his love is constant and consistent, ever, never changing, ever present. One of the ways in which we struggle with trusting God and loving and, and receiving his love is because of our own interpersonal relationships. The way that we struggle to really believe that we are loved by each other even, and, and love and trust go together. The title of this sermon is Trusting the Giver, Trusting God. Well, we, we won't trust him unless we believe that he really loves us. And the same is true with us. We struggle to trust people because we, we struggle to believe that we are loved by them. And, and even more complexing is that people who say that they love us have hurt us. So why is that? Well, because sinful people hurt people. And so what tends to happen is because of our struggle to really believe that we're loved by one another and therefore trust one another, even those who are closest to us within our own family and close friend circle, is we will project those feelings and experiences with people onto our relationship with God. And the hurt and the woundedness that we experience interpersonally, we attribute to him as well. But it's even deeper than that. It's not just that we project the ways in which we distrust and, and fight to be secure in the love of others upon God. It's, it's actually distrust and unwillingness to believe the love of God is in our very nature. It, it, it's from the very beginning of human history. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, we, we, we inherited their nature. We were born into the very same disposition of distrust doubt of love that they had. I read this quote a couple of weeks ago in a sermon that I gave, and I'm going to read it again. I think it's yet again very poignant to where we're headed this morning. Tim Keller wrote this in one of his books. He said, we distrust God because we assume that he is not truly for us, that if we give him complete control, we will be miserable. Adam and Eve did not say, let's be evil. Let's ruin our lives and everyone else's too. Rather, they thought, we just want to be happy. But his commandments don't look like they will give us the things that we need to thrive. So we'll have to take things into our own hands. We can't trust him. Part of our struggle is the reality that we, we have that very same nature within us. Because of sin in us and because of the very nature of sin within us, we we doubt God's love, therefore we struggle to trust. You know, it occurs to me that to say I love you 
is meaningful. It is. It's important. It's meaningful. But to show that love, to demonstrate it, is moving. To say I love you is, is, is something that God does. He, he even, Isaiah 43, as Caleb referenced earlier, if you keep reading in that chapter, he says to Israel, I love you. Even in the midst of all of the quagmire of sin that they were in, he says to them, I love you. But he goes further than that by demonstrating that love. I can say, you can say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And it means something. As I've said, it's meaningful. But then to demonstrate that love in tangible ways, to show it, carries with it a deeper moving nature than just saying it. So we could summarize that by saying, uh, love verbalized is meaningful. Love demonstrated is moving. And one more thought, love is most often expressed in generosity. When we love someone or something, we give ourselves to it. We, we even shower gifts as a result. And oftentimes our love is measured by the value of that gift, is it not? I'm not gonna give a diamond ring to anyone else than Rachel. Right? That's a measure of my love for her. The, the, the extent to which I love her is measured by the value of a gift. We show that in rings and things like that. But God did something profound. He didn't just tell us that he loves us. He showed us in the most unthinkable of ways. John 3.16 there's a temptation within most of us, I'm gonna guess, if you're like me, that you hear, see, read John 3.16 and go, this is a sermon that I know. I can relax on this Sunday morning. I can, I can sit back and John 3, I mean, I'm the first verse I ever memorized. It, it is most likely the, the most famous verse in the Bible. Why? Well, because in one sentence, it summarizes for us the good news of Jesus Christ. It, it tells us of the profound love of God. And it is the verse that uh, for ages and centuries has been the verse that the church points to is if you want to just have it in a nutshell, here it is. This is what we believe. And this is the good news. And with that, there's a temptation as well to let it become old hat. But John 3.16, I want us to take it this morning and I want us to take it bit by bit and be amazed again at the love of God. To stare at him and his love in the face. It starts this way. For God so loved the world. Let's take those first two words. For God. We have, to, we have to pause and take these first two words for God and ask the question, well, if, 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 if John's going to start us there, that for God, he is the one who has done this, who is he? Who is God? And, and we, could spend, uh, we could spend the next 52 weeks, a whole year, doing a, a sermon series, and perhaps we should, 
on who God is. All of his multifaceted character and attributes, all of the depths of which he is who he is in his uniqueness and his holiness and his otherness and just the, the, the profound ways in which God is God and we try to wrap our minds around him. But for the sake of this sermon, for this morning, for this time that we have together, we're gonna take just one little piece of who he is that is not little at all. It's his very essence, because what does the scripture tell us? Well, 1 John 4, 8 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. He is love. It's not just what he does. It's not just uh, a thing that he expresses and, and that comes out of him. He is in his very essence, love. God is love. Think about that for a moment. He is the measure of love in and of himself. He is the barometer, if you will, of love. He is the very definition of love. What is love? God. God is love. I love one of my favorite commentators, uh, biblical commentators, a guy named William Hendrickson. I love how he says it. He says, God is ever full of life and full of love. Take all human virtues, then raise them to the nth degree and realize that no matter how grand and glorious a total picture is formed in the mind, even that is a mere shadow of the love life which exists eternally in the heart of him whose very name is love. A mere shadow. Henderson is trying to help us kind of just begin to realize that no matter how much I try to fathom who God is as love, that what I could conjure up to the nth degree would be a mere shadow of the reality of who God is in his infinite, unchanging, always and forever love. For God so loved. For God so loved. We could even read that. Love so loved. God is love. Love so loved. But don't miss that that two-letter little word, so. It is vital. It's critical. It doesn't read God loved, for God loved, but God so loved. The word so here in these verses represents a depth, a breadth to the love of God that that John is inviting us to ponder. To what extent has God loved us? He has so loved us. I don't even know, it's almost as if John is going, I don't know how to even fully express it. It, it, He so loved us. And, And there's so many things that we could fill in there to modify so, to say, this is how so loved us he has. So, so he, we could say he so infinitely loved us. He so gloriously loved us. He so inexhaustibly loved us. He so inexplicably loved us. He so astonishingly loved us. He so unfathomably loved us. And we could just keep going and keep going and keep going because we're not talking about any ordinary human love here. 
We're not talking about any type of love that has strings attached to it that would be conditional in any way. It is a love that we will spend all of eternity with him seeking to wrap our minds around as we gaze at his glory, profoundly wondering about him, why and how could he love me so? He so loved us. And what makes that love so inexplicable, so astonishing, so unthinkable, so, so unfathomable is the object of his love. Because what does it say next? For God so loved the world. Now, there's a lot of debate over the centuries among scholars of what exactly is the world that's being referenced to here. There, in the original language is the word cosmos, which for some doesn't bring a whole lot of clarity because that, that begins to ask other questions. So is it, are we to literally think of the universe and the land itself, the literal earth, the world, or is there more meaning to it? Is it more nuanced than that? So forth. Those who are in that we would agree with theologically, commonly agree that uh, it's a reference to fallen mankind throughout the world. Men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation, Jew and Gentile alike. What we can say with confidence based on the teaching of scripture as a whole is that this is not uh, anything to base upon as some do, an interpretation that would be uh, universalism that universal salvation, we know that there will be many in the world who don't believe upon Christ and receive the love of God demonstrated through the Son of God. And so uh, we, we, we can be confident in that, but perhaps B.B. Warfield summed it up best when he said, the world in this verse is a, and this is how he said it, a synonym of all that is evil and noisome and disgusting. Warfield doesn't mince words often. All that is evil and noisome and disgusting in the world, and God says, I so loved. What makes his love, like I said a moment ago, so unthinkable is the object of his love. And so if the object of his love is what Warfield is helping us wrap our minds around, we can begin to understand how just extraordinary this love is. For he has set his love upon a people who are because of our sin, disgusting. It's hard for us to hear, right? Sometimes we go, don't let me, I don't wanna to go to church and hear how horrible I am. Well, I, I get it, I understand that, and we'll move out of this to better news, but in order for the news to be as beautiful and awesome as it is, we have to go there. We can't not go there because then the profound love of God doesn't grip us as securely as perhaps it would if we don't understand first how truly disgusting we are because of sin. We have to get our heads around the reality that we haven't offended God because we've made some poor choices. We haven't offended God because we've made some mistakes. We haven't even offended God because we're bad people. It's actually much worse than that. We've offended God because we are by our very nature, not by our choices, but by our very being, not by our behavior, but because of who we are, we are an offense to God because we are sinful. 
in every aspect of who we are, at every turn of our lives, left unto ourselves, apart from the pardoning grace of God, and apart from receiving the unthinkable love of God, we offend God in every aspect of who we are. We spit in his face, we say, I don't want you. The way the scripture says it is, it says, no one is good, no, not one. No one seeks God, no one is righteous. No one. We don't want him. We don't want his story for our lives. We don't want his glory. We want our own. We want to be happy. And we say, God, happiness is found apart from you. This is the expression of our hearts. The way Ephesians 2 says it is that we are dead in the trespasses of our sin in which we once walked that we follow the way of the world, that we follow the prince of the power of the air, just a fancy way to say Satan. You may say, I've never followed Satan. Yet, but by default, we're either on one team or the other. Everybody's on the playing field. No one's in the stands of the game of spirituality. And we're all on one team or the other. And we're born into, by nature, the prince of the power of the air's team. And we have offended a holy God. And God owes us nothing. Actually, let me rephrase that. He does owe us something. As that verse continues in Ephesians chapter two, it says that we are by nature children of wrath. We are by our very nature deserving of the wrath of God. That's what sin deserves. We have to sit with that for just, just a little bit here. Not so that we would just go, wow, I'm gonna wallow in condemnation, but so that we would go, wow, he doesn't offer me that, although that's what I deserve. He actually sets his love upon me. He doesn't give me what I deserve. He offers me complete opposite of what I deserve which is the very one who should uh, destroy us, loves us. He loves us. Friends, brothers, sisters, listen, we, we cannot let, we, we cannot let the astonishing reality of that be lost on us. We can't let it wane away. We can't let it just fall by the wayside and, and, and be a people who, who, who say, if we're honest, I used to be amazed by the love of God for me, but that's become a, a common message that I've heard so often. It doesn't move me the way that it used to. Remember, saying I love you is meaningful, but seeing it dis demonstrated, displayed, moves me. It does something in me. Bob was preaching a couple of weeks ago and he, he referred to this illustration and he said, Jeff uses this illustration often. And I do because I don't have that many illustrations to begin with. I just have to recycle them. And, but, then, but I keep coming back to it because I, just for me, it's where I have to keep reminding myself, go there again. And the illustration is simply this. When I was in campus ministry and for those years, many years, 13 years, we 
Over the course of those years, we would take students to New York City during spring break, many, many spring breaks. We do a lot of mission work in the city on college campuses throughout the city, but we'd always take a day, sometimes two days, depending on the length of the trip, and just make sure that the students had plenty of time to enjoy the city, see things that they've never seen before. And so naturally, one of the places that we would always go was the Empire State Building. I'll never forget the first time that I went up to the top of the Empire State Building. I was amazed. Everywhere you look, except for when you look towards New Jersey, it was beautiful. It was breathtaking. If you're from New Jersey, I apologize. It's easy. It's an easy joke. But it's gorgeous. You look south and you see just lower Manhattan and all the, just the, the crazy, amazing ways in which that city has been built. And then off in the distance, you see, see the harbor and you see the Statue of Liberty and you just take it all in and you stare at it. And then you turn and you go, you go north and you look out over that direction and you see Central Park and, and the concrete jungle all around it as well. And you look down over here and see Times Square and you just, you just take it all in. And it's just, just this overwhelming sense of awe and wonder and wow. And I didn't want to come down. I remember the second time I went up, walked around for a bit and watched others have that same experience. But uh, for me, it was, yeah, this is cool. Yeah, I remember this. this. I like this. Not taking near as many pictures, not staring in awe and wonder quite as much. The third time we took a group to New York, I didn't even go up. I said, you know, you guys going up, I'll wait for you down here. And I can remember sitting on the sidewalk outside the Empire State Building, waiting for them to come back down and having this thought. This is exactly what I do with the love of God. This is exactly what I do with the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love for me. It was a profound, overwhelming reality sometime back then where I stood in awe and wonder and, and just took it in and said, I don't want to come down from this view of your love, oh God. I, I, I sense and know the depravity of which my sin has taken me. And I feel viscerally, I see so readily what I deserve. And it's not your love, but yet you have thrown it on me. You have showered me with your love. You have covered me with your love. And I stand at the rooftops of the love of God. And I just go, wow, how could you ever love me? I wanna worship you, I wanna want give my life to you, I wanna follow you, I cannot believe that you would love me, oh God. And the more that I sit there, a, a really unfortunate thing happens and it's called life. <laughs> and I don't stay up there and I come down and I just get inundated with everything else and I'll go up occasionally and go, oh yeah, I remember this, this is cool. And then, but eventually I just don't go up there in my heart. I want to go back. I want you to go with me. I want us to see and stare at the love of God. For God so loved me. How? Why? Why? 
How do we know? How do we know that God has loved us so profoundly? Well, it's the next few words. God so loved that he gave. Remember, love is, love is expressed in generosity. And love is measured by the value of the gift given. God so loved that he gave. And what did he give? He gave his only son. Bruce Milne in his commentary says it this way. If the depth of love is measured by the value of its gift, then God's love could not be greater. For his love gift is his most precious possession, his only eternally beloved son. He could not love more. <laughs> he couldn't love more. How are we to respond? Well, John 3.16 tells us when we begin to gaze at this love, there's an invitation to respond to this love that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes that we would believe upon him. I'll come back to that word believe in just a moment. But I want to focus just, just for a moment here on the word perish. What does that mean? That if we believe upon him, we won't perish. Something that we don't love talking about in modern day churches. But he's talking about spiritual, eternal death. He's referring to hell. Because remember, God is, he is love. But he, remember I said we could spend a year mining the depths of who he is and his character and his attributes. He's also holy and just. And so in his holiness and justice, he must, he must punish sin. If he didn't, if he chose not to, then he would cease to be holy and just. And so although he is indeed love to an incalculable level, he's also just and he has to punish sin. And sin, if we don't receive the love of God for us, has eternal ramifications. And it's called hell. But the promise and the invitation is that if you believe upon the only one who conquered sin and death and hell, then you'll receive upon yourself not only the love of God, but you'll receive the record of his son. That by faith you will be seen as righteous and you will be given both new life now in this, in this life and eternal life in the life to come with him in heaven. Believe upon him, you will not perish, but have eternal life. This moves us to do what? Well, two things. The immeasurable demonstration of God's love and the gift of his son moves us to first to trust him. We know that we are loved beyond, beyond our wildest imaginations. Then we trust the very one who would love us so. That word believes, that whoever believes in him, that's really getting at trust. That word in the, in the original language is, 
is, is, is more thick. It's a thicker word. It's more, uh, more rich than, than what we would typically think of and how we use the word belief. We, we tend to water down belief. Do you believe our team is going to win today? Do you believe this? Do you believe that? What this is talking about is, is deeper than that. It's, it's really getting towards trust as we might think of it in the way we use the word trust over and above believe. To illustrate that, I'll use another just illustration I've used for years. And it's just an old illustration that you may have heard, but it's, it's so good as a reminder of what, what does it look like to trust in this context? Imagine you're at Niagara Falls and there is a world-renowned tightrope walker who is uh, gathered a crowd around him and even TV stations and, and uh, streaming platforms and they're, they're videoing what he's doing and he has no net underneath him and he's tightrope walking back and forth over the falls. You, you're, you are there and you, you're one of the ones who's watching this and you're amazed at what he's doing and you watch him come back across to the crowd that is gathered. He steps off the tightrope onto the dry land and he approaches the crowd and he says, I wanna ask you a few questions and by way of applause, just let me know. The first question is simply this, uh, do you know that I can continue to do this? Naturally, you and the others gathered cheer and say, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've been watching you. We, we know you can do it. He says, okay, all right. Again, by way of applause, how many of you believe that I can continue to do this? You go, well, I mean, I'm not real sure I know the difference there. I mean, I know you can do it. I believe you can do it. I've seen you do it. So, okay, yeah, yeah, you can do it. Believe you can. He walks through the crowd and he goes behind one of the TV trucks and he grabs a wheelbarrow and Proceeds to push the wheelbarrow out to the tightrope again. And, he, and you watch him go across again, but this time he's pushing a wheelbarrow. And he goes across to the other side and then pushes it right back to the crowd. And as he comes off this time, he, he actually locks eyes with you. And he pushes the wheelbarrow right up to you and you're getting nervous. And he says, hey, I, when I asked those two questions earlier, you know that I can do this and you believe I can do it. I want to ask you a question. If you really do believe, would you get in the wheelbarrow? And, and I'll, I'll push you across. You can go with me. Suddenly, there, there's a big difference between generic belief and life-transforming trust. What the scriptures are calling us into, what God is calling us into is not just this generic belief. He tells us even the demons believe and shudder. He's not asking for, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. And yeah, I mean, I, mean, I believe, I, I, I guess I believe that Jesus is the Savior. He's, he's asking you to trust him. to get into the proverbial wheelbarrow and say, you have me, I'm yours. You're the only one I would ever trust at this level because you're the only one who has loved me perfectly, sinlessly, sacrificially to the nth degree. So naturally, what's the second thing that it moves us towards? It's that we would give ourselves to him, that we trust him and that as we trust him, we would give ourselves to him.
I love to call our attention to the context of of John 3.16. It takes place, it's nestled into a bigger story. And the bigger story is the story of, of this conversation that Jesus is having in the night, in the shadows of the night, with this very influential Jewish man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come to him asking questions, and Jesus has given him some answers that have confounded Nicodemus. You, you must be born again. Nicodemus is confused. How can one enter again into his mother's womb? He's trying to figure things out, and it's in that context that John 3.16 is written. Whatever happened to Nicodemus? Story kind of ends. We don't hear about him after verse 15, right before John 3.16. He shows up again a few chapters later, but then he shows up one more time at the end of the story, at least the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Nicodemus shows up when Jesus is being taken off the cross and they're looking for people to bury him. And Joseph of Arimathea is selected to be the one who provides the the tomb for Jesus' body, but Nicodemus is actually with him. John's the only one who records this. It's broad daylight, it's in the afternoon after Jesus has died. No longer is he ashamed to be seen with Jesus where he approached him in the night before. Now he says, look, I don't care what you think of me, I'm associating with him. And I'm giving myself such to this one that I am gonna do something extravagant in nature. Listen to how Kelly Capick puts it in his book, writing about this. He says, Nicodemus had received God's gift and he was transformed by it. The first man ever to hear the message of John 3.16 eventually understood it and experienced the transforming power of the gospel. We see it in the 75 pounds of spices. Don't think pounds like American pounds. Uh, It's different, but it's still a lot. It's extravagant, which amounted, as he says, to the extravagance in the extreme for a Jewish burial. Here's the point. The point is that when Nicodemus trusted Jesus, He mirrored Jesus in his generosity. Remember who is God? For God so loved, he gave. Who are we if we are Jesus' people? We are people who also, in response to his love, we love, and what do we do? We give, and we give generously because it's the nature of who our God is who we are now united with. Two, through trusting in his son. We're amazed that we have been taken from hell-bound slaves to spirit-filled sons and daughters only and completely because of the love of God. And how do we respond? We give. We give our lives. What does that look like? How? How do we give our lives? What does it look like to give in response to God's love? Well, that's where we're headed in the next three weeks. So I hope you'll come back, enter in with us as we consider what does it look like to give in response to the love of God. Father, thank you. Thank you that you indeed love us more than we could ever even begin to fathom. Stir within us, move us, O God, as we consider not only that you have told us that you love us, but that you've shown it in the most extravagant of ways. 
There will never be, never has been, never will be again, a demonstration of love like what you have given in Jesus. Would you move our hearts? Would you awaken us? Stir within us that we may too may love and give as you do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.